You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students here on UC Berkeley campus about their research. Today I'm joined by human evolutionary geneticist Melinda Yang. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about uh, yourself in terms of where you are in the graduate program. Okay, so I am in my fourth year in integrative biology. I work with professors Monty Slatkin and Rasmus Nielsen, and they do mostly theoretical population genetics and with a, with a strong dose of human population genetics in there. So we should just start right away and define population genetics. What is that? Tell, tell the audience. So population genetics is basically where you're studying within a species. So like it doesn't just apply to humans. It applies to, to all animals or organisms. And then if you're studying a lot of individuals within that species and looking at the variation that they have, then you're studying population genetics. And, of course, you're looking at the DNA that they have. Okay, that, that makes sense. So we've got a population of individuals, and we want to look at their genes and, and how they're moving around because we all know that, you know, DNA is what genes are, and that's what makes things, organisms, right? Right, yeah. I mean, I'm... in the simplest terms. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, awesome. So your fourth year. How did you get into, I mean, does anyone think when they're, like, five years old, like, I want to be a population geneticist? Um, I, I didn't, that's for sure. I think at the time I was probably still thinking ballerina or doctor or something like that. For, for myself, it largely came from an interest in, in archaeology, actually. In, in ninth grade, we went on this, this class field trip to Jamestown. Well, it was to D.C., but on the way we stopped at Jamestown and an archaeologist talked a lot about reconstruction of Jamestown and understanding the way people lived back then. And I was super fascinated and just wanting to have a better understanding of human history. And then really I found my interests were in human prehistory. And from, from there I kept trying to find topics related to that. And then I was always really good at biology too. And then seeing the connection between biology and, and history was, was really exciting to me. So that's sort of where, where I was coming from. So what is prehistory? You, you said the word prehistory. What's ah. that? So prehistory is where you essentially, the definition is from like where you don't have writing. So protohistory is you have a little bit of writing, like maybe inscriptions on pottery or things like that. And then history is sort of the onset of writing. So it really is different in different regions. Um, but then, so for prehistory, the fact that you don't have writing means that you're left looking at the material remains that are left behind and trying to reconstruct from there what's going on. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you a tough question now. Aren't there some cultures that to this day don't use a lot of writing? Yeah. So again, in the sense that if you have writing about them, I think that would also be considered history as well. Like you have written sources about them. Of course, like just because there's history doesn't mean that you don't also do the archaeology on them and you wouldn't look at their material remains as well. But just that prehistory sort of sort of defines a certain point where where you have sort of nothing about them that was that was written, whether from them or from some other peoples. And in a way, you could also say that that a lot of people could could see it as prehistory sort of starting at a certain period, perhaps with onset of agriculture, things like that, or somewhere with like onset of state civilization, that sort of thing. But then prior to that, hunter-gatherer subsistence strategy would, would be prehistory in, a, in another more simplified way. But I think that's not really the, the official definition of it. But then there's some slight correlations there. 
Okay, so we've got history, we've got prehistory, and then we've got really ancient things. I know you've done some work with ancient DNA, which is sort of a, a hot phrase for us public. Uh, can you tell us first what is ancient DNA and then about your experience working with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so ancient DNA, it again really varies. So you could have ancient DNA from historical specimens, so things in museums where things that are only a few years old, things like that. Anything that's sort of not taken directly from the organism while they were living is considered ancient DNA in a sense. But then the stuff that I'm more interested in is ancient DNA from humans that were around during prehistory, ancient DNA from hominids that that were around 50 to 100,000 years ago that maybe aren't technically called uh, like something like modern-day humans or homo sapien. And so that's essentially... DNA that they've taken um, out of like bones, hair, sort of any ancient samples that were left behind at some site that they've excavated and the conditions were really good. And then so none of the DNA, ah, let me rephrase that again, where some DNA is left behind and not all of it was sort of disintegrated into nothing. So a hominid, uh, we should we should define that one too. What You said not modern homo sapiens. We, okay, we're homo sapiens. What, so what's a hominid? So, and again, there's sort of some differences in in that different people will define it in different ways. But generally, a hominid would be anything that's, in, in this context, would be anything that's not like modern, anatomically modern for humans. So, so you're saying there were other types of homo, for example. So we're homo yeah. sapiens. Uh, the most commonly known one would be Homo neanderthalensis. Right. right. Yeah. So, so generally, I would refer to Neanderthals as a hominid because I'm referring to it as something that's sort of distinct from from all humans today. I think you can also get into a debate with a lot of experts out there about whether that is a species that's different from from modern humans today or or not. But but generally, I think you can say that Neanderthals are a distinct population from from modern humans that diverged um, or sort of separated from the ancestors of modern humans roughly 300 to 600,000 years ago and exited or like either dispersed within Eurasia or exited out of Africa into Eurasia, like their ancestors, and then had at most very little interbreeding with modern humans after they exited out of Africa as well. But when you say modern um, humans, you mean anatomically modern humans that were living at that distant point in time at the same time as Neanderthals. Exactly. Anatomically modern humans. So when you look at their skeletal remains, you can see that they really overlap really well with with all modern humans today, like looking at their variation. So we've got this like ancient playground with different homo species or homo populations that are definitely skeletally distinct. Um, And they're sort of hanging out in the same place at the same time. That's kind of weird to think about, don't you think? I mean, we're used to being like pretty much the only bipedal, (laughs) hairless ape around. We are now. (laughs) (laughs) I guess from my perspective, having studied this a lot, I I would say that we're the odd ones, right? And that there's nobody else that's really dispersed quite in the same way that that modern humans have. And, And most of hominid history, there would probably have been like several different species or at least distinct populations of of hominids in various parts of the globe. And then so now to have us be so genetically similar to each other, 
relative to to sort of other animals. It's and so dispersed across the world. That's that's the un- unusual situation. No, that makes sense. That makes <laughs> sense to me. Okay, so we cleared all that up. So you you worked on ancient DNA in China. Am I correct? So so yes. So that was mostly prehistory in the early Bronze Age of China. So that it's. In terms of the definitions I gave earlier, sort of more proto-history, it's during the Shang and Zhou dynasties is where, where I was particularly interested in. And so they had some writing on on oracle ro- bones and bronze works and pottery and things like that. And then so, but then nothing like like books written down where you really have a very detailed understanding of, of the history. That sort of comes comes in later periods like the Han Dynasty. And so anyways, this period, I'm, I was interested in the transition from the Shang Dynasty to the Zhou Dynasty, where in historical records later on, where they had were writing about their own history, they describe that the transition from the Shang to the Zhou was a conquering of the Zhou, sorry, of the Shang people by the Zhou people who sort of were more to the west. Um, and so this was all situated along the Yellow River in the central plains of China. And so from sort of historically, so I guess you'd say historically, there's writing of the sort of transition from the, the Shang to the Zhou. And then culturally, there's a lot of works that have looked at the pottery remains, the bronze works um, in different sites, sort of on the west and east side of the Yellow River, and have found distinctions that some look more Shang, some look not Shang, which was which had a very distinct set of design, I guess you would say. And and then so therefore you have archaeologically this distinction between what is potentially Shang and potentially Zhou. And so there's sort of an argument to be made for a cultural shift, at least. And whether there was an actual biological shift, well, nobody's ever really looked at that. And so I was hoping if I could get bones from various cemeteries from these sites, then I could directly analyze their DNA to see if that if you can tell whether there's a biological distinction between these two groups. Awesome. And and I know I remember you saying that you had to lead it you had to leave everything there. China won't let you oh, out yeah. with anything. Yeah, so that was I was I think I was really lucky that that my advisor and some of my other people who were helping me out and giving me me advice about what to do, they were wor- really worried that when I went to China that I would have a really hard time getting a hold of bones to sample. The academic hierarchy is much different than it is in the United States. And also sort of being an outsider coming in, maybe I wouldn't get access to these ancient human bones that were the ancestors of of somebody in China. That's, I guess, another question of who were they the ancestors of, if, if anyone today. But when I went there, it was actually, well, it was a bit hard to get a hold of the archaeology, archaeology professor who was helping me get the samples. But once I did, he helped send me down to go get them. And I just had to sign a contract. And basically, the most important thing that they were emphasizing was you can't take these bones out of China. I don't think you can take any human bones out of China, actually. And you couldn't take the DNA extract either. So I had to do all the work last summer over over there. And it was basically a, a preliminary start. So it's it's not done yet. But it was I was really just checking to see if I could get DNA out of the bones. Because like I said earlier, it depends on the conditions. If you don't get enough of it, you can't sequence it. You can't compare it to look at the variation. In terms of extracting ancient DNA, is it pretty much like CSI? Just, <laughs> are there like multicolored lights shining down on you <laughs> while you do really intricate work to there's dramatic music? One, well, there's 
Well, if I could bring a radio in, I definitely would have played dramatic music. It would have made it a lot more interesting. <laughs> but the only different colored lights were we had to work under, we had to have some places where we turn on the UV light so we could like destroy any modern DNA that might contaminate the, the tables that we were working at so we don't get them into the samples. But mostly it's a really boring process that is even more boring than for modern DNA and more stressful in ways because you're just super, super worried about modern DNA getting in because you have so little ancient DNA. And if a little bit of modern DNA gets in, it's probably more than the ancient DNA that, that you have. And so all you're going to sequence is, is yourself or whoever else was around in the lab. And so there's some really awful horror stories of, of these things happening. And so you always have to be really careful. But you basically like dress in this like one piece suit and then like wear a face mask, wear a hair mask and tie everything up, wear these slippers. You like go to this room and they like blow air at you to like knock off any stray bits of hair or I guess other things that are on you. And then you enter these rooms where you spend three to four hours just trying to get the DNA extract out. And then there's several different rooms for different stages of, of the process. So it's like on and off, on and off, all this clothes. But uh, it does sound a little stressful, actually. <laughs> I was very stressed about getting any modern DNA in my in my samples. I think I got better. At, I'm granted I'm a I'm in a lab that's computational, which means I don't usually do much lab work. So it was definitely a great learning process of getting used to the lab work again. I haven't done it since college, and then to the more stringent rules that are applied for for ancient DNA. Okay, and uh, speaking of ancient versus modern, we're going to talk about some of your more contemporary work. Uh, in just one second. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the talk show where we interview graduate students about their research here at UC Berkeley. Today, I'm joined by human evolutionary geneticist Melinda Yang, and we've been talking a little bit about her work in the past, and I mean that quite literally in terms of ancient DNA. Uh, but now we're going to speak more about what, what you're doing right now. So so right now I've been working for the past year sort of out of the lab and, and more just on the computer and using publicly available data sets for various humans and for various hominids like Neanderthals and, and the Denisovan as well, as well as other prehistoric humans that have been sampled. And so this method should be general to sort of all organisms, but basically I'm developing this method that uses like a very tried and true population genetic technique that's called the frequency spectrum, where it, it looks at new mutations that that arise in in various groups and in sort of the distribution of of these mutations in modern day populations. Okay, well, I can't. So as soon as you said that, I just got this picture of like this movie I like, Neon Maniacs, with people like arm or like the Toxic Avenger with people the arms sticking out of their heads. Those are not the mutations. You're not talking about mutants, no, right? No, no, not mutants. Um, they're mutations in the sense that so everyone has DNA that it codes for the various uh, characteristics of their body. And these are made up of, of four bases that create this code. And they're adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, so A, G, Cs, and Ts. And, and so you have mutations where one person might have an A at a particular location, but then another person might have a, have a C. And, and so one of these, the A or the C, is something that historically or ancestrally was there within the population. And then at some point, there was like a mistake in replication and a C was put in place instead of the A. And so then any descendants of 
of that individual will will have a C. And so over a really, really long period of time in different places, these mutations will accrue. And then we can study these differences to get a better understanding of the past demographic history. Okay, so basically we've got lines of code like you would see in a computer or Mm -hmm. like the matrix, right? And uh, you're kind of talking about lining them up and seeing how many differences they have between them. So these mutations must not be bad if they're going to stick around for a long time or... So some of them are bad, some of them are good, and most of them generally don't really do that much. So your DNA is sort of divided into coding regions that, like I said, will tell whether your eye, what color your eye color will be, like your skin color, your hair, whether it's frizzy or not, and various other things, but proteins are made inside of your body. And so those things, a mutation can have a very good effect or an extremely bad effect, or if you're lucky, maybe something very slight. And then there's lots of areas where it doesn't seem like it codes for anything at all. And in these areas, if you have a mutation, usually you would consider them to be mostly neutral. And so and as a population geneticist, mainly you're interested in, in these regions because you want to understand how the past history of a particular population has been shaped. And then so you don't want, like the ones that have had a good or bad effect will cause really, really large changes that won't really reflect necessarily the, the actual history of what's going on in terms of migration and population size changes. Okay, so you're looking for these neutral variations uh, because it's the sheer fact that they're neutral makes them sort of unbiased in terms of understanding differences. That makes sense to right. me. Okay, so where were we? Where were we? we were talking about the mutations. Right. You're looking at mutations, and uh, please continue. To tell us, so it's all on a computer, you said. Right, so it's all on a computer. So basically there's these large data files that are like huge amounts of gigabytes, and there's some things like the Thousand Genomes Project where I have about 11 populations, each with about 90, or varies from like, I think, 50 to 90 individuals of all from a particular population. So for instance, there's one that's coded GBR, which is these are all individuals that are from Great Britain. And they have said on some survey of some sort that all of their grandparents were also from Great Britain. And so they I think a lot of labs put in a lot of money, uh, or governments too, to sort of sampling the genetic variation across several different populations and and then like made this public repository so that a lot of people who study human genetics can look at it and compare what's similar, what's different in various um, populations and sort of get an idea of like one, what I'm interested in, human demographic history, but then also like for medical purposes of like what general trends do you find in each of these populations? Okay, so that so I was wondering why they would want to do it. Why would they invest money in this? And does it come down to health? I think probably most of the justifications for it does come down to health. Like right now, there's a lot of money being put into sort of like personal genomics, right? So how do you use personalized medicine where you can like get a person's genetic sequence and then get an idea about what medicines are appropriate for whatever health issues that they that they have and then you definitely have population trends where certain populations certain mutations like I said are, are in higher frequency and so so when I said earlier that once a mutation arises all the descendants of that individual where the mutation arose are likely to to have that mutation and then so Therefore, in certain populations, if a particular mutation arose, then you're more likely to find it in that population than another one because it's really, really rare that a mutation happens. Okay. And you said you're interested in human demographic history. What What's demography? What is a demographic history? So in my sense, I think there's 
different ways people study it, but I'm interested in the how the population has changed. So has this population migrated to new places? Did it come from a particular place? Like, for instance, our modern human populations, the various non-African groups come from ancestral populations that came out of Africa, for one. And then we're also interested in population size changes. So was there a certain point when there weren't very many people within a population, whether due to disease or because they sort of split off from a larger population, but then over time, they really increased in population size. And you can trace that within the the DNA and the, the variations that you see. So, so those are probably the two biggest ones, population size changes and migration patterns. And just tell me, why are you interested in this personally? So this goes back to sort of my interest in, in history. I think it's, I well, I feel everyone sort of has a, a drive to understand where we come from as, as what, how did people get onto this globe? And some of them approach it in different ways when people approach it in philosophy, just like, what does, is it that makes us human? And, and then they think a lot about morals and things like that. And for me, my it's really rooted in, in this sort of question of like what it is that makes us human, what it is that it's like a huge mystery story, right? Of where do we come from? And so that's probably like where it, it first started of me just thinking this was an incredible field to play in and get an idea of how different populations have arisen. I think one thing that's sort of arisen for for myself though is an appreciation of all the various populations there are in the world through this biology i feel like i have a very different perspective on different human groups and the ways that they've sort of uniquely shaped the history within their various popula- um various environments that they've been in and the ways that they've connected with different human groups in all the different parts of the the world and sort of migrations encountering each other and just the unique history of humans. So you're talking about human populations, human groups. I know that there's one word that other people would use and uh, they're not biologists, (laughs) but uh, that's the R word, race. So why do you not use that word? I mainly don't use the word largely because I think that it's so imbued with connotations that are socially constructed that it becomes very confusing when you use it in biology. And there's actually a huge resurgence in the United States, at least, sort of of whether biology is connected to race at all. And historically, it has been so much, but in such used in such negative ways that really, if you look at the biology, didn't really make much sense that when I use the word race, I don't know what the other person who hears the word race is really thinking of and what things that they're attaching to it. So it's, I'm not sure I've found the perfect word yet since I keep using the word groups, but I'm trying to like sort of remove myself from that word so that they aren't attaching all those sort of things that have been historically imbued into the word race. So basically, it's just not a useful word at this point because we don't know what it means and everybody has a different definition. Right. I would say that that's my sort of main view is that it's a a word that really shouldn't be used anymore. But then at the same time, I sort of have grown to appreciate how how it is currently used in society. And I think we do need to sort of find different ways of talking about different cultural groups, because I think there's something to be said for you can appreciate differences sort of just in terms of various populations have had a unique history and you can see that shaped by them. But then these are differences really to be celebrated. And real and a lot of times when race is used, like it's associated with difference and it's used in sort of a, a negative way. So that's where 
the issues largely come in. And I would also say that practically there's problems with racial disparities and things like that. And so it's there becomes this conflict of how do you talk about like how do you remove the word race and then deal with the racial disparities that do exist because it, they do exist now. And so we have to figure out a way of, of seeing where they occur. And then so there's this catch-22 of you need to use the word race in like censuses and things like that to sort of pick out where racial disparity is occurring. But then we want to sort of slowly remove the word race from the population because it's so negative in a lot of ways. And that's why we have the social sciences and the humanities. <laughs> it's very important. Yeah. Because really that's a topic. Biology. Yeah. We don't want to talk about. So for us <laughs> in biology, um, yeah, we say human population, for example, and that this takes us all the way back to the beginning of the interview. And what is a population? So in this case, it's a group. It's a group within a species. Um, they're interbreeding, so that means they're doing it with each other. And <laughs> yeah. they're having offspring as a result of that. So kids, little kitties running around. And, um, and yeah, they can have a unique history because they live in that population. And you can see that history in their genes. And so that's what you're looking at. Right, right. I would say most human population genetists don't really talk about race at all. But then a lot of it is misconstrued as, oh, you are talking about human races. And then there's it's really important to understand the differences and definitions there. And I yeah. And I think you did a good job explaining it and, and talking about it. So um, so we can just leave that one in the dust. We're okay, done with that question. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free if anyone to talk about it with me. I yeah, don't give your email out. Now. <laughs> no, I, won't, I won't shout it out here. <laughs> but um, so just just some of the other things that you've done. I really wanted to talk about some of your outreach because I saw that you've done quite a lot of outreach here on campus with different groups. And uh, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. So I guess there's three main things that I've, I've done. The first is BASIS, Bay Area Scientists in Schools. And that's something where you design a lesson plan and you design it for a particular grade and usually K through fifth grade, I think. And then you go out to the public schools in Oakland and Berkeley area and teach this lesson plan in about an hour. And it's I've done it for the last two to three years. We usually talk about fossils and then we make fossils with, with second graders. And it's super fulfilling to just see how much these second graders absorb and how excited they are about this subject. So that's that's one of them. Uh, another one is Expanding Your Horizons, which is sort of a one-day conference, a series of workshops that occurs in, in March for middle school girls. And it's basically to encourage girls to enter the natural scientists to have a better idea about what, like how cool natural sciences are. And so you can either like help teach a lesson or help organize it or things like that. And so I taught a lesson. I actually adapted the fossil lesson plan and we showed them a lot more crazy fossils like a giant saber tooth like skull and a sloth, giant sloth claw, a dire wolf, things like that, and help them like search for fossils as well. And then the last one was teaching at Berkeley High. So I guess I've sort of gotten elementary school, high middle school, high school as well. And that's through my lab. We've got in touch with a few teachers in ninth grade over there who teach advanced biology. And we said, hey, we'd love to talk about various biological subjects we do. So we've gone and taught a lesson on forensic genetics and on sort of basic population genetics and how you would use population genetics to study various individuals in a population. So a lot of good work coming from you, uh, not <laughs> just research, but outreach. No, that's great. And where, where do you see yourself going? I know you said the word policy. I heard that. So, uh, you know, don't be ashamed. Uh, uh, tell us, though. Yeah, where do you see yourself going? So I 
I sort of see two routes that hopefully could be combined in some way, but I'm not completely sure yet. Um, as you can see from the outreach, I have a lot of interest in education, and I really think that there's a lot of importance in teaching and like human variation and how you see it, like our discussion on race, a lot of people have misconceptions and it's really important to get that stuff out there because it really affects everyday life. But then, like I said, I really want to like make an impact and the more that I read about and, and study how humans have adapted with their environments and these implications of how we use the word race, I was, I am interested in policy as well. And I'm sort of hoping that afterwards there's a lot of postdocs for policy that uh, grants that are out there and exploring how I can communicate science within these policy fellowships. So like there's some that are more broad that wouldn't really be related to genetics that are related to how science is brought into legislation. And those things I think I'm concerned very much with human adaptation of landscapes and things like that. And then there's more bioethics sort of thing. So like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of medicine that where they're really looking at genetics and they're using population genetics to get an idea about like which medicines are good for certain groups of people and things like that. And there are a lot of people are getting their personal genome sequence. And so in the next 10 to 20 years, I think there's going to be a lot of law set out, like how you use this stuff, what's ethical and what's not. And I think a population genetics person would have a really good perspective on what makes sense and, and, and what doesn't from a biological point of view. I, yeah, I already believe that you have a great perspective. So <laughs> trying, I, I'd crying. nominate you. I'd vote for you. <laughs> well, uh, so we'll see. So policy and education, I don't really want to give up both. So, <laughs> Well, I'm hoping, I think a lot of us are hoping that in the future there will be more jobs combining those elements. Um, and, and speaking of the future, what do you have any advice for undergraduates or high schoolers who want to get involved who you know are interested maybe in human genetics or just or even computational biology mm -hmm. yeah so I would say being the lab that I am I haven't really talked that much about the computational work that I do but a lot of it does involve all like computer science and scripting and using program language programming languages and I actually learned all of it in grad school but I would have been very, very happy if I had learned it earlier. So I would say that that would be, it would be great to sort of take those classes. So to get skills in terms of programming languages and maybe some statistics, I would, that would be really useful as well. And then, but then for content, really just take all the anthropology classes that you can get. I love anthropology and that will really generate the type of questions that, that you're interested in. So that's sort of where, where I was coming from of, of that two-pronged focus. And then of course, search for labs. Like our lab also takes undergraduates and we set them to work mostly on computational problems, especially. So if you have like scripting ability, then you're in a really good position to work in our lab. So and Lord knows we're in the Bay Area, so there's got to be a few kids out there with, with some computer science background. Definitely. Uh, well, any last words today? No, thanks for letting me talk. This was really great to talk about humans and race and all of these sort of issues. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a lot greater when, when no one can get into the studio. <laughs> no, no, I really enjoyed it. Uh, again, you've been listening to The Graduates here on KELX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and I've been joined today by Melinda Yang, human evolutionary geneticist and integrative biology student here at Berkeley. That's right. The Graduates is the interview talk show where we speak with graduate students about their research here at Berkeley and around the world. And tune in two weeks from today for another episode of The Graduates. Join us on Tuesday, June 3rd, to hear from agricultural economist Andrew Stevens. Stay tuned. You're listening to KELX. Alex Berkeley.